Welcome to Moms Going Boldly, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by two moms who write about autism and who also happen to be Star Trek fans. We talk about the new series, compare it with previous versions of Star Trek, and also talk about any autism examples we see along the way. I am your host, Elizabeth. Hi, I'm Vicki. Together, we are Moms Going Boldly. We're talking about the episode, Vaulting Ambition. Michael Burnham and the Discovery crew find themselves in a universe where honesty and loyalty are all in question, as they try to find a way to get back home in one piece. We are here today to talk about the latest episode, Vaulting Ambition. And before we begin, I wanted to apologize in advance. We've got another storm bearing down on us, and we're getting wind gusts up to and over 30 miles an hour. And the last time we had a storm when we recorded, I could actually hear the wind in the background. Okay. We start this episode with a recap from last week's episode, The Wolf Inside, and then we open with Michael Burnham and Captain Lorca on a shuttlecraft, and they're on their way to the Emperor's flagship. Do you know what the meaning of the name of the flagship, Karen, is? No. Karen is the name of the ferryman in Hades who would ferry souls across the River Styx. So, oh, really? Yeah, so it's not a really very uplifting or positive reference. And they also referred to the ship as the Imperial Palace, which, of course, is what Stamets in his fugue state was calling, was saying, don't go to the palace. Right. While they're on the shuttlecraft, Michael Burnham gives Captain Lorca something to block the pain of the agonizer booth. And we see an exchange between them because Burnham is struggling with seeing a woman who looks like her Captain Giorgio, even though she's not. What did you think of that scene between the two of them? Well, she says she's not the woman I betrayed, as you find out later that she kind of is. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I know. We're already kind of feeling icky about Lorca. So the scene is already already feeling icky, isn't it? It is. It is. Hand on her. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody else did that, it wouldn't bother me. This was bothering me. Yeah, I agree. Because, again, we, you and I have talked about how manipulative he is, how he has been putting himself in the place of a father figure for her, a confidant for her, and there's been always been something that's slightly off about it. Right. Our little spidey senses are going, our ganglia are going, which is probably not a good reference. I know, I know. (laughs) But we'll just move forward. They're given permission to dock on the Imperial Palace. We go to the credits. And so we don't get to see what happens next. Instead, when the show opens again after the credits, we are back on the Discovery. And Tilly is with Stamets, who is showing signs of improvement. But he's still in a coma. And this is where Tilly says her delightfully charming phrase. His skin is so dewy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I was so happy to see that wonderful, charming sort of naivete coming back out of her because, A, it supports my hope that she's not going to be influenced by the ruthlessness of this universe. And, B, right. this is what we fell in love with Tilly. 
this just yes. sort of lack, wonderful lack of filter. So then Stamets tells her, um, excuse me, uh, Saru tells her, and I really love this. She, he says, fix him. Right. So even though she had this terrible misjudgment last week, Saru, as her commanding officer, is still willing to let her do her best and to try again and to employ the lesson that she learned from that mistake. And I loved that. It was a wonderful, quiet, brief moment, but it spoke volumes. Yeah, and I, Saru has a lot more compassion in this episode than he did when he took over as captain. Why do you think that is? What do you think has changed? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know what's changed. He, but he seems to have a lot more compassion with Tilly and then later on, yes, Tyler. Yes. Do you think maybe it was his experience on the planet with the Pavan people that cured him of his sensory overload, but then also made him want to stay there even violating their orders? That experience might have instilled more compassion? It just seems much more... Or maybe he's just more comfortable in the position this time. That's, I don't know. That's a really good point, too. Yes. Yes. As we're talking about Stamets's dewy skin, the next scene is actually joining Stamets in wherever his consciousness is. And this is where he has already met up with his mirror Stamets. And right. the mirror Stamets explains that he's unconscious in a coma in his lab on the Mirror Universe's palace ship. And he needs our universe Stamets to help them get out. Right. Then we go back to Michael and Captain Lorca who are being introduced into the th throne room, which was really impressive. It was, yeah. I thought it looked great. It sounded great. It felt great. It, it was did. It was believable. When you have that much gold, <laughs> it can be so over the top. But it worked here. It really did. It did. And then as the emperor welcomes them, she says to Michael Burnham to choose one and points to three Kelpians on the uh. side. And Michael Burnham chooses one, and this one is walked out. Michael Burnham hands over Captain Lorca, and he's wonderfully, you know, smarmy with her. Yeah. That, that was a good moment. He's not going to bow to her, and he's, you know, smirking, and he's clearly adversarial and she hits him and then sentences him to a long life of torture right then she warmly welcomes michael burnham and everyone claps and calls her daughter shocking yeah i thought it was an interesting parallel you know in the previous in, in our universe we had michael burnham having her parental figures being amanda and sarek in right, this universe yeah. her parental figure is Captain Giorgio, but you and I spoke about, when we were talking about the Vulcan Hello and the Battle of the Binary Stars, about how much Giorgio took a parent role. Exactly, yeah. And so here it was again. Right. She tells them to take Michael Burnham to quarters, and then they're going to have dinner together later. Then we go back to the Discovery, and we're in sick bay, and we're seeing Tyler Vock, put those two names <laughs> together well, Tyler Vock is in sick bay. He's restrained, and he's screaming. And he's clearly shifting between the Vok persona and the Tyler persona. The Vok persona is cursing and Klingon, and the Tyler persona is asking about Michael Burnham and asking for help. What did you think of that scene? See, I don't. Was he? I think it, it almost seemed like he was fighting the Vok persona. Not that they were. Not that, yes, he was shifting back and forth, but I felt like he was fighting. Or were they Vok. fighting each other? And, and I think that's an interesting distinction. Is Tyler fighting Vok, but Vok is cool because he's got the upper hand there? Or do you think they're fighting each other? I want to think they're, he's fighting Vok. That's what I want to think. I don't know 
what the reality is, but I'm going to go with he's fighting Vok. Okay. Wishful thinking on my part, but that's what I want to go with. Okay, I like it. <laughs> and Saru, you get to see more of Saru's compassion here. He right. wants Tyler helped, and the doctor is at a loss. She says this man's DNA is Tyler, but there is an underlying set of engrams in his brain that suggests another personality, and we don't know what to do here. I think you're correct that it's not only the compassion, but it's also the leadership qualities in Saru. Right. It's the leadership that's informed by compassion, which is what makes a great leader. Right. Then we go that the first time around. Yeah. Then we go back to the Imperial Palace. We join the Emperor and Michael Burnham having a meal together. And it's very not too long that we discover that what they're eating is the Kelpian that Michael Burnham selected. Which, that she selected that looked just like Saru. She picked the one that looked just like Saru. It's the, probably one of the most horrifying moments of it the was. entire series. Up to and including when Tyler snapped Dr. Colbert's neck, which was also a horrifying moment. Even worse. And it is worse than when the Klingons said they ate the body of Captain Giorgio. I know. It was. And I think that scene, I was thinking, why did they include that scene? Because it was almost gratuitous in its horror. But as we're going to discuss later on, it appears that there might be some allying of forces between the Discovery and the Emperor. And we need to be able to recall how terrible the decision that will be based on this disgusting, abhorrent behavior. Yeah, there was no reason for it unless... It goes what you're saying. And I, I feel fairly confident that our writers are going to do that because so far the writers have actually been really thoughtful and very smart about what they've chosen to include and how it has contributed to the overall story. So right now both of our bad guys eat people. I know. <laughs> We get into a conversation, the Emperor and Vernon get into a conversation where after we're recovering from our horror, it quickly devolves. And we realize that the Emperor knows that the Captain Burnham of her universe has betrayed her. And all of a sudden, our Burnham is in a lot of trouble because the Emperor orders her to her throne room to be executed. And and that's kind of like the callback to she's not the woman I betrayed. Well, she is. Exactly. The other Michael betrayed her in this universe. The mirror universe has mirror events. Yeah. Then we go back to where Stamets is in his consciousness. And he's working with the mirror Stamets to try to figure out how to get themselves out of that. And he sees Dr. Culber walking past him and thinks that Dr. Culber is also in this reality, wherever this is, that they're in in their comatose state. And he decides to go follow him. And then we go back to the throne room. This this episode moved around a lot. It, it came. did. So we go back to the th- throne room where Burnham is going to be executed by the emperor. And in order to stop her execution, she confesses that she's not from this universe. She's actually from a parallel universe. And she gives Emperor Giorgio... Captain Giorgio's Starfleet insignia with her name on it and the quantum resonance from their universe contained within it to prove her story. And the Emperor takes it and sees the insignia, recognizes what it is, runs a scientific analysis on it and determines that the quantum resonance is the same, kind of smiles and says, isn't this a quaint idea? And then pulls out the fidget spinner of death and kills almost every single one of her advisors who were in attendance in the throne room. I know. I thought, 
It was awesome. It was. That, it was. I, didn't, I, didn't, I had to watch it twice because it, it, it was so fast. I did hear a segment of After Trek actually said that, yes, this was based on a fidget spinner. And I yes. loved that because, as you know, the fidget spinners were originally designed for children, adults, with autism, with sensory processing disorder, to help them stim. And now this tool crafted for people on the autism spectrum is now the basis of a really cool weapon in a Star Trek episode. After all of her advisors are on the floor, she reveals she knows all about the parallel universe. She knows all about the Federation. She knows all about the Defiant. Uh, She's fully informed on this and she doesn't want anybody else to know about it. Hence the fidget spinner of death. Meanwhile, we go back to the Discovery, and Saru is trying to work with Laurel. He's trying to get Laurel to help him help Tyler. And Laurel explains exactly what they did, and I still found it confusing. Yeah, it was. She said they had Tyler's body, they had his DNA, they superimposed Bok's personality. Did that make sense to you? No, because originally we assumed that it just changed Bok. Even the way Dr. Colbert explained it. Yeah, because of all the extensive... I don't know. This didn't make any sense at all. It didn't. She said they used Tyler's DNA, and they superimposed Vok's personality, and Vok gave up his body and soul. But we also know that Tyler's body had extensive surgery done on it. So did did they put in parts of Vok's body in order to help cement the personality? That's what I could think of, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. According to what we were, what we, well, through the flashbacks and what they thought and what we, I guess, always figured. Although we just kind of imagined that. I don't think anybody ever actually said that. So I think that Vok somehow, they changed Vok into Tyler somehow was just a theory. We never actually heard anybody say that, did we? No, we really didn't. Oh, but then Dr. Kolber's diagnosis didn't make any sense. His body was altered. Yeah. Somehow they merged the two. Yeah. Which, if that's the case, if we've got essentially components from both characters, their bodies, their souls, their minds, their emotions, everything, in a way that supports your theory that this might be the source of the albino from the Deep Space Nine episode because that would explain the great unhappiness if these two personalities end up being conflicted for the rest of their lives. That that supports that. So Laurel refuses to help. She says that Falk is a soldier. He agreed to this. He made the ultimate sacrifice and I'm not going to help you. Do you think she refused to help? Yes, everything she said, he made the sacrifice, this is how it is. But this isn't supposed to be how it is. Prayer should have triggered him, and that should have been the end of it. Do you think she realizes that there's a reason why, and she's a little angry at Vok? I'm thinking, I was going to say, this may be the first time that they've done this with a human, but she's able to speak the human language so easily and she said she had ancestors who were spies who had picked up human culture so they might have done this before i don't know this is pure conjecture now but i'm going to go on the, i'm going to err on the side of no because when we see her uh, thinking about Vok, it's in a, still in a very loving way and even her interactions with tyler have, in the wolf inside were very affectionate 
Right, but at this point now, th there's a conflict in his own body. I don't think she knows the reason yet. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with that. I'm gonna, uh, because honestly, I don't want her to know the reason yet, because finding out the reason will actually make for really good storytelling. Oh, I'm sure. And I'd like and to I see that. I don't know that. She, I don't know that. I don't. I don't think she knows specifically Michael's the reason. I think she she understands that he's conflicted. He spent time with these people, and now he's conflicted. Okay. I don't think she's angry with him, though. No. But maybe. I mean, she was definitely passionate in her refusal. Right. We go back then to Stamets consciousness, and he follows Dr. Kolber, and they end up in their living quarters together. And I loved this scene so much. It was probably my favorite scene in this episode. Yeah. Uh, he learns that Dr. Colbert is dead, and it's a lovely goodbye between the two of them. Very heartfelt, very caring, loving, really, really beautiful. And then Dr. Colbert essentially gives him advice on how to get out. He explains that he needs to he needs to do this to get out. Everything he's done is good, and and it's a wonderful scene where his this person who he's trusted most in his life is the one who's going to help him solve this problem that he's in. Then we go back to the Emperor and Michael Burnham, who is talking, they are talking now about what the Emperor knows about the Federation and about the Defiant. And I loved this scene in particular for a couple of reasons. The Emperor, in an angry sort of voice, spits out these elements of the Federation, equality, freedom, cooperation, like they're the most terrible things, and this is why she censored the Defiant Logs so no one could find them. Right. And I loved this because it was a, a wonderful statement on how dictators and tyrants do not want people sharing information. Okay. Dictators and tyrants don't want anyone to have knowledge, anyone to get together and to talk about it, um, to share these ideas, and equality, and freedom, and cooperation, just add on to that. That's a snowball effect of communication and cooperation. I, you know, again, you know that I'm an attorney, and of course, one of the things I studied was the Constitution, and First Amendment of the Bill of Rights is all about how the government can't stop people from talking to each other, can't stop people from getting together with each other, and can't stop people from communicating with each other. So I was really enjoying this, this discussion of how she, with her emperor, her tyranny, wanted to squelch these very things that we know and that the Federation understands leads to a healthy society. Right, and she believes that it led to what they have now actually ruined their society and that's why she they had to have an emperor which would be some interesting backstory wouldn't it yeah so she understands what brought the defiant to this universe she says it was interphasic space that caused the time travel but it also made all of the crew member go insane and kill each other and she doesn't understand how Michael Burnham and their discovery made it to that universe without experiencing the same effects. And Michael Burnham tells her about the spore drive. And they agree on an exchange. The Emperor is going to learn about the spore drive and she's going to release the discovery and let them go back to their universe. Did you believe her? No. No. <laughs> and then she says, is the woman that you know, did you trust her? 
so that means you should trust me. Well, you know, you know that's not the case. I know. But that I, what I was trying to say before was she was telling her that all these Starfleet beliefs brought the downfall of their civilization. That, that was the word I was trying to think of. Okay. And I would, like I said, be very interested to see what the historical backstory is. Yeah. To see if that was just the propaganda utilized yeah. by the person who wants to be in power, or if it actually somehow did happen, which would be a very, very interesting story. So then we go back to the discovery, and once again, Saru is trying to get Laurel to help him with Tyler, and when she refuses again, he shows her a picture that Tyler escaped his restraints and was trying to engage in self-harm. He was essentially cutting himself. Right. Mm-hmm. And when she said, that's too bad, he beamed Tyler into the cell with her, unconscious, clearly not doing well. And she holds him with a great deal of affection. She did, yeah. Uh, you know, she holds, a, holds his body, and there's the expression on her face is full of tenderness, and she's holding him with tenderness. And then she says, it can be undone, but only by me. Did you believe her? No, not really. (laughs) I don't believe many people this episode at all. (laughs) So then we go to the torture chamber where Captain Lorca is in an agonizer booth faking his way through torture. And the captain of the ship comes in and he wants to personally torture Captain Lorca for injuries done to his sister. Mm -hmm. And he keeps asking Captain Lorca to, to... Remember her name. What was her name? And he lets lets another one of his crewmates die. Right. As the captain is trying to torture the answer out of him. He threatens one of Captain Lorca's crewmates. Captain Lorca doesn't give him the answer. He lets one of the crewmates go ahead and die in kind of a grisly way. And then he pretends to collapse in the agonizer booth and the captain pulls him out because he can't die because the emperor ordered a long, long life of torture. But, of course, Lorca's not actually experiencing pain because of the treatment he received from Burnham in the shuttlecraft. So he attacks the captain. And I think it's at this point when he says there were a lot of women because it's good to be the captain, which is a funny callback to that great Mel Brooks movie. I think it's History of the World Part 2. Yeah. We go back to the Discovery, and Laurel is in sickbay. And Tyler is on the table, and it's clear that whatever procedure that she says can help Tyler is going to take place. And she uses the red fingernails of doom to do something to Tyler. And he's initially talking in Klingon, but eventually as the treatment progresses, he starts speaking in English. Right. And we see her having memories of the two of them together. And then when it seems the procedure's over, she screams. Yeah. What, What do you think happened? Well, the the howl would mean that he's that her Vok is dead. Because that was the Klingon death howl. You know, that's what I thought at first. So, you know, you were thinking to yourself that she pulled Vok from Tyler's brain and that killed Vok. But where did Vok go? I don't know. What if Vok went into her? What if she's now possessing Vok's consciousness? And the yell was simply the merging of the two, either a yell in that triumph could. or a yell because of the process or something. But she's got him now. That could be. 
You know, she's dedicated to the cause, and she's dedicated to Vok, and he gave up everything. And would she really walk away from everything they had done and everything he had sacrificed that easily? See, I don't know, because there was one point where, you know, she, he was he was going to be like that forever. So if she loved him, she wouldn't want to see him in that kind of pain and agony forever. And yes, I don't know, would she walk away from him? I don't know what's more important to her, the cause or Vok. And I think that's a really excellent question. Then we go back to Stamets and Dr. Culber, and Dr. Culber is revealing that the mycelial network is in danger. And it was the mirror universe Stamets that actually caused the damage. Our universe Stamets must save the mycelial network or all life is going to die. And he says you can come out of this by waking up. And so Stamets comes out of his coma, and he sees Tilly, and they both go into the mycelium forest and see that the corruption has already spread in real life to their mycelium drive. Yes. Then we go back to the emperor. And Burnham has gotten Saru to agree to meet them so that the emperor can see the spore drive. And the emperor starts talking about Lorca's betrayal. Burnham is trying to get... Lorca out of the agony booth, but the Emperor's like, he was bad in my universe, what makes you think yours isn't bad too? And as the Emperor's talking about him, we see Michael Burnham start to have the realization that all of us have known for a very long time. Right. This Lorca is from the Mirror Universe. Right. One of the things I liked that they did was they talked about how, you know, the Emperor talked about how Lorca had groomed Burnham. Mm -hmm. And you know, grooming is a is a specific term related to child sexual abuse. Exactly. And, you know, most people think that child abuse takes place by a stranger who grabs a kid in an alley. No, it's usually done by people the child knows. And the grooming essentially binds the child to the adult who then uses their influence to abuse the child and stop the child from telling anyone. That sounds exactly like what she was describing without saying that exactly. Yes. And it's exactly what we were seeing Lorca doing. Right. And I really appreciated this because it was part of that spirit of Star Trek that I know that I've always loved, which is that they were willing to take on difficult topics and raise them and present them and discuss them as part of the storyline. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we saw a really good uh, presentation on PTSD when Tyler saw Laurel in the Ship of the Dead. And now we're talking about components of child sexual abuse. And it, it just reminds me of, you know, what Star Trek has always done. You know, like uh, the original series episode, Let This Be Your Last Battlefield. Do you remember that one? The one with the, the races that had black on one side and white on the other? Yes. When I saw that as a kid, and, you know, did you watch Star Trek when you were a kid? I did. I watched it in its original run. Yeah. I didn't see it in its original run. I saw it right after it went into syndication shortly afterwards. So there was a little, probably a little bit of overlap. But when I was a kid and I saw that episode, I clearly understood what it was talking about, that it was talking about the race issues that were taking place in our country at the time. The episodes that were related to communism and the Vietnam War and other issues in our society, they were all very recognizable to me because I saw the nightly news with my parents. Yeah. And I appreciated, even then, even as a little kid, that this show was trying to have a conversation about those issues. 
and that's something that Star Trek has traditionally done. I mean, you got to see the same kind of thing in the next generation. Remember that episode Symbiosis where the one planet offered a drug and the other planet was addicted to it? Yes. Uh, do you remember the episode The Outcast? It's the episode where they encountered the species that was essentially neuter- neutral gendered, but one of them was secretly female. Yes, yes. See, these were all issues that they were trying to tackle then, too. You know, the issue of the, of drug abuse and drug addiction and the issues of bias against homosexuals and people of a different sexuality. And so portrayals of the PTSD and the discussion of, you know, child sexual abuse are along the same vein. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and while they're no longer sort of in the after-school special format that they used to be, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's because... People now are more sophisticated. You know, if somebody wants to know what grooming means, they can whip out their phone and they can look it up on the Internet while they're watching the show. Whereas, you know, 30 years ago, that wasn't a possibility. So now you don't have to have a whole episode about it. You can talk about it, present it, and then people can go check it out on their own and learn more. I'm glad that they are adhering to that spirit in this new series. Oh, my. Yeah. So we see Burnham realizing that Captain Lorca is from the Mirror Universe. She's telling the emperor we have a problem and at the same time Lorca is escaping from the torture chamber because the palace ship captain pulled him out thinking he was dying he attacks and kills the palace ship captain and now we have full-blown mirror Lorca there's no secrets anymore we know that he's a bad guy but I would just just go back um, when um, Michael was talking to Saru Three, four episodes ago, he would have never taken Michael Burnham's word. So it just shows how much they're, how much they trust each other now more than they did when she first came to the ship. Yes. Yeah, that's an excellent observation. Yeah. And I think, and they're going to need that trust. Oh, absolutely. Because it appears from the sneak peek from the next episode that it's going to be Discovery and the Emperor versus Lorca and his followers. Right. I think I figured out why the writers included that grotesque scene of the Emperor and Michael Burnham eating the Kelpian that she selected. If Discovery and the Emperor are going to partner against Lorca, Saru is theoretically, as captain of the Discovery, he's also theoretically in a great deal of danger from this empire that eats his kind. What if this is how Michael Burnham redeems herself in the eyes of Starfleet? She committed mutiny and lost one captain. What if she's able to somehow save Saru and save another captain and that rehabilitates her and she's able to get her commission back? That would make that scene make sense. So here's the things I'm confused about. Though. Okay. And Emperor, the Emperor does not know about the spore drive and jumping, correct? She knows it exists. Oh, but does she know it in her universe as well? She must. You're right. She must know because if they've got Mirror Stamets working in the lab there, but he never right. said, but he never said they were using it for propulsion. And he was saying that our universe Stamets was the navigator. Okay. So they must be using it. For, they're probably trying to figure out how to use it as a weapon. When she said the spore drive, the emperor must have tuned in to the fact that she had a scientist working on something related to spores as well. Okay. So good. that's a good observation. And then 
we still don't know how Captain Lorca, our, our, our universe, to the regular universe okay. to begin with. Yes, which could be the secret of how they... But what if... Ooh, what if it was Mirror Stamets? What if they were working together? Be. But, so there is a way back. And it would also explain, then, how Lorca knew how to manipulate our universe's Stamets. Oh, sure. I wonder where the real Lorca is. I wonder if he went down with the Baran. That could be. So our next episode is entitled, What is Past is Prologue. And then after that, we have what is the last episode of the first season, which is entitled The War Within and The War Without. And then after that, you and I had talked about maybe doing some podcasts on some other series, Star Trek episodes. And we had talked about maybe doing podcasts on episodes that have been related to this Star Trek Discovery series this season, episodes we thought were having some callbacks to or that somehow this story was building on. But I also wanted to invite any of our listeners, if they had any suggestions or recommendations of episodes that we should talk about, to please go ahead and fill out the comment box on the Podbean page for Moms Going Boldly, and we will look at doing episodes that our listeners suggest as well. Also, uh, as a heads up for our listeners, there is a what looks to be a wonderful movie coming out on the 26th of January. It's called Please Stand By, and it is the story of an autistic woman who wants to submit a Star Trek story into a competition, and so she leaves her group home to go accomplish that mission. And so we'll do a, a, a special podcast, a special Moms Going Boldly podcast on that movie. Vicki, anything else we should talk about? I, it came to my attention, listening, that I keep calling the Terrans Terrians. That's a callback from an old show called Earth 2. Nancy Brown, Deborah Fiorentino, Rebecca Gayhard. They were leaving Earth in search of a planet that was supposed to be just like Earth because her son had to wear some kind, he had some disease and the only way to cure him was to get him off earth and the the people who lived in the ground they they were they looked like dirt people and it only lasted one season and i loved it and i realized when i was listening to our last podcast that i kept saying terrians <laughs> If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find me at autismmom.com. That's autism-mom.com. You can find me at takingstep.com. And we hope that you will join us for the next episode of Moms Going Boldly. Music used on Moms Going Boldly is entitled Without Limits by Ross Bugden Music. It is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. And please follow Ross Bugden on Twitter at Ross Bugden.